I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week are prisoners of war. Prisoners have been part of conflicts for thousands of years and are a part that tends to not get as much coverage as the conflict itself. But of course, prisoners of war and their experiences are very important parts of any wartime experience. Some of these individuals go on to great fame and and success and share their stories. Perhaps the most prominent example of that in the modern era would be John McCain, who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam and went on, of course, to be a longtime senator from the state of Arizona and the 2008 Republican presidential nominee. The experience of the prisoners themselves tends to be a little forgotten and, and doesn't get nearly as much attention. I think one good example of that comes from Canada, which housed thousands and thousands of German prisoners of war during the Second World War. And these individuals were taken to camps all across the country where they developed their own little internal cultures. Some of the men, of course, were hardline Nazis. Others were Germans who had been drafted or forced into service. And within that, there were moments of tension amongst the prisoners. And at each location, they developed their own internal political structure, their own way in which they survived the prisoner of war camp experience while at the same time developing some form of a relationship with the community around them. And one terrific example of this comes in Medicine Hat, which is where Camp Number 132 was located. And some of the German prisoners of war in Medicine Hat actually went out and worked on some of the farms. And certainly wasn't everybody, but that filtered into the camp and the little community that was created there. Of course, at the same time, that camp was run internally amongst the prisoners by a Gestapo of hardline Nazis who maintained control of the camp. Certainly, the RCMP guards who were there maintained the security of the location. But in terms of the internal culture of the men, because bear in mind, the camp itself had as many men there as Medicine Hat did in its total population. The men, therefore, had a numbers advantage if they wanted to try to do something. Uh, But this Gestapo that developed within the camp helped keep things, for the most part, peaceful. And I say for the most part because there were two murders at Camp 132. The first came on July 23rd, 1943, when a guard saw a group of men take August Plazik, a German prisoner who was captured near Tobruk on the coast of Libya in November of 1941, to a recreational hall. And his body was later found bloodied, beaten, and lifeless. He was hanging from a rafter when they found him. And then 14 months later, on September 10, 1944, Sergeant Carl Lehmann, a translator for the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, who had been captured near Tunis in May of 1943, was found hanging from a gas pipe in the classroom at the camp. 
And these two murders prompted an investigation by the RCMP. They tried talking with the prisoners. They put German-speaking maintenance workers or disguised German speakers as maintenance workers to see if they get some names. And they were unable to solve these murders during the war. And it wasn't until after the war where individuals were tried and convicted of these two murders. And what we see after the war is the execution of those who are convicted. And this has been deemed the last mass execution in Canadian history that takes place following these two murders at Camp 132. And this is the subject of a new book entitled Hanged in Medicine Hat, Murders in a Nazi Prisoner of War Camp and the Disturbing True Story of Canada's Last Mass Execution by Nathan Greenfield. And while this book certainly does profile the murders, the two victims themselves, the motive behind the murders and profiles the courtroom drama that took place, it also speaks to the experience of prisoners of war, what they potentially go through, how individuals within these camps associate with their surroundings, the community such as it could exist in that setting, that is born out of it. And in particular, the internal structures that serve to govern these sites. And when you look at conflict, these stories, I think, are so important in understanding how individuals can cope with their surroundings, ways in which the wartime experience isn't always shaped entirely by what goes on on the battlefield. And this book is a wonderful example of that while also profiling a piece of Canadian history that is oft forgotten. So I was very excited to have the chance to speak with Nathan about the book. And we really jump into a lot of the main themes here. So again, in just the timeline of it, though, you have Plazic, who is captured in 1941. He's murdered in 1943. Lehman is captured in 1943, murdered in 1944. And then the convictions and the trial take place after the war. The murders are not solved until the war in Europe ends. So until the spring, summer of 1945. That's the, the timeline there. And I will actually link to a piece that Nathan wrote for the Globe and Mail that profiles that timeline a a little more than we get into here as we talk more thematically about what's going on. So hopefully you enjoy this conversation. I know I did. So let's get right into my chat with Nathan Greenfield. And Nathan Greenfield joins me now. Nathan, how are you today? I am fine and thank you for having me. Uh, My pleasure uh, to have you here to talk about Hanged in Medicine Hat, a very interesting book, uh, a subject that I did not know much about. Uh, So Nathan, before we get into some of the specifics of the book itself, uh, let's get into a little bit about your interest in in your background, because you've written several books uh, that are historical in nature. You you are very much a a historian, but unlike some of the people that we talk to on the show, uh, not in a faculty position. So uh, how do you manage to find the time uh, to go about doing this work? Well, I was a professor of uh, English at Algonquin College for most of my writing career. So I had a faculty position, but not obviously in a university. Actually, my father, uh, my late father was a novelist. 
And uh, my, I never really wanted to write, but ended up writing. And uh, my father always said, if you want to write, write, don't talk about it. So when not grading papers or, or you know, prepping for classes or raising the family, I wrote. And uh, I always say I'm a nonfiction writer, so I didn't have to come up with a plot or a subplot. <laughs> you know, we know what we know and we know what we don't know. And to some degree, that makes things simpler. I became interested in prisons of war uh, when I wrote my book on the um, Battle of Hong Kong. So the uh, Battle of Hong Kong goes from the 8th of uh, December to Christmas Day, 1941. And then there's three and a half years of being prisoners of war. So that became, uh, of course, the about, I guess it's two thirds of the book is the prison of war years. And that led then to obviously having done that for the Second World War, it made sense to turn my attention to Europe. So I wrote the book, The Forgotten on POWs, Escapers and Invaders in the First Second World War. I then wrote a book on Canadian prisoners of war in the First World War. And having done those, I decided, well, I know this story exists, having written about the POW camp in Bowmanville. So I turned my attention to the prisoners, German prisoners of war in Canada and not a compare-contrast uh, difference, although for myself it was interesting to compare and contrast, but their story then became quite alive with these two um, uh, murders and the trials. So let, let's get into this a little bit, the idea of prisoners of war in Canada during this time, because so much of the discussion that we, we tend to get in schools and in the popular imagination about detention during the Second World War in Canada is related to things like the, the detention of Japanese Canadians, that, that tends to be where the focus is. So how did you go about researching it and how many camps were there for prisoners of war from Germany here in Canada? There were dozens and dozens of camps across the country. Uh, there was one on St. Helens Island in Montreal, where Man in His World is now. There was one across the river from where I am now in Hull. Uh, there was one in Bowmanville, Ontario. That was the U-boat camp for the most part. Uh, they ran across the country. The biggest, two biggest were in Alberta, Medicine Hat and um, the one in um, Lethbridge. What kind of documentation is there for you to go in and, and do the research here from the simple thing of how did they get here? How did they get to the camps? Uh, and then what, what was left over uh, for someone in your position to go and try and, and do some research? I became interested in the story actually uh, 15 years before I wrote the book. And uh, the uh, National Archives here in Ottawa had a complete set of the investigative reports and the trials. Then I later on got investigative reports that um, were in uh, various uh, archives in Alberta. So I have almost a day-to-day -day from the first murder onwards, what the RCMP was doing, what the military intelligence was doing, where they were. I could, I could see where they were going wrong, of course. Of course, I had to keep that to myself in the writing. Uh, because you have to um, keep keep the suspension uh, of you know suspension of disbelief since we know the end of the story, and then uh, so you know, there were the chapters investigating and they're kind of interesting because the RCMP goes on a number of goose chases and they're kind of fun to follow and uh, then you get to the trials and you it becomes a courtroom drama. Uh, in terms of the men's lives outside of those sources, there was very little. There are records of POWs writ large. There are some memoirs of being in Canadian prison of war camps, including one by someone who was in uh, Medicine Hat. So there was a, uh, I, could, I could draw from that. 
Can I tell you what somebody ate on a particular day? No, I can't, with one exception. The uh, guy who uh, uh, killed Schultz, killed Plasic, sorry, uh, and ate a hard-boiled egg. Uh, but uh, I can follow it pretty much day by day. And then you look at the newspapers and you try to figure out, well, you know, there's a big storm happening. So there's a reason why the RCMP did not get there that day. Right. Yeah. So uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Medicine Hat in particular in the camp that was there, Camp 132. It's identified as uh, there in the book. And just in general, what was... Before we get into, obviously, the specifics of the murder, what was the relationship between the town and the camp? And were people in town concerned that here are a bunch of Nazis in our midst? Uh, yes, it's it's a, a detention camp. But still, just in general, what was that relationship like? They were rather happy. It brought a lot of jobs. <laughs> Medicine Hat's population doubled, essentially, and uh, there were good uh, jobs. Uh, this was, you know, no, the camp uh, is um, built in 1942, and its uh, depression is over with Canada's in the war, but still uh, it produced uh, a fair number of jobs, lots of investment, uh, building things uh, for the camp, uh, a new generator, waterworks, all that kind of stuff. There was actually a pretty good relationship. German prisoners of war in Canada uh, were treated extraordinarily well. Canada was assiduous in following the Geneva Convention, which meant that officers were allowed walks, parole walks. Now, in Medicine Hat, there was only one officer, and he did take walks, but senior non-commissioned officers, non-commissioned officers were allowed walks. Uh, they worked on farms. They boarded with families. The book opens with the story of Joyce Risa who um, played truant to see the last days of the first trial, last day of the first trial. She uh, was uh, one of the members of the Glee Club, the Victory Girls of the local high school, and they performed uh, Christmas shows in the camp. So uh, it was a, a relatively good relationship with the town. I mean, they were, of course, prisoners of war. They, When they were walking in the town, they had uh, to wear coats with uh, a bullseye on the back. So people knew who they were. But uh, in general, it was uh, very much uh, live and let live. Let's walk through the initial violence that generates the interest in the trials. So what is the precipitating moment that really kicks everything off? And how surprised were individuals in Medicine Hat at that initial stroke of violence? Well, for the most part, they didn't know about it, although that's not true. It was an open secret. Uh, about the first killing because uh, Plasic's body is taken to the local morgue and, of course, people do talk. It was an open secret. There was no uh, particular worry. The newspapers did not report on it, and there was nothing. I interviewed uh, uh, Joyce Risa before she died and her husband, and uh, they don't recall there having been any problems after it sort of became known that this happened. And as I said, there was nothing in the newspapers. The precipitating event was the fact that most of the prisoners of Medicine, Medicine Hat were Africa Corps men. And inside of the Africa Corps, there was a group who had been members of the French Foreign Legion, who were respected by the Africa Corps men as soldiers and despised as having been members of the French Foreign Legion. And there was always concern amongst the Germans about these, of whom they, the Africa Corps, the French Foreign Legionnaires, whom they didn't quite consider Germans anymore, about whether or not they were good Germans, whether or not they their fealty to Hitler was real, uh, since they had already broken their fealty to the French Foreign Legion by enlisting in the German army. 
the, what the precipitating action was a fear by uh, the Gestapo leadership in the camp that a number of former French legionnaires were gathering together, reading newspapers, and perhaps fomenting uh, or planning to foment a rebellion against the the, uh, the camp leadership, that is to say the German leadership, which was notified by that point. So there's this investigation that takes place, and one man, Schultz, breaks away from the hut where the investigation is going on, and he runs basically across the camp and then crosses the wire. So he's between the wire, a wire which runs at about the height of um, your ankles and the uh, fence, which is about maybe eight, ten feet further. And the only reason you could cross that wire was to get a soccer ball, at which point you had to wave a white flat, uh, a white piece of cloth. The uh, Canadians in the, in the guardhouses saw men running after him, shouldered their rifles, and in fact, let off a couple of shots to stop the crowd from grabbing him. He was then gotten out of the camp. While that went on, another group of uh, Germans broke into the hut where the men had been held before being interrogated, grabbed Plazik, took him to the recreation hall, and strung him up. Was Plazik a threat? No, almost certainly not to the leadership. This was very much a mob action. In fact, the original trial, the prosecution of the Crown wanted to try it as if it were a riot, but they weren't using the Riot Act. But in all shape and form, it was a spontaneous outburst, which doesn't excuse it. It's just that it wasn't necessarily premeditated, unlike the killing of Lehman. Let's talk about this idea of a Gestapo within the camp and just the culture that emerges within a prisoner of war camp, because I think it might surprise people to hear that these Germans who are in medicine hats and we're talking around 12,000 people and obviously they're going to create a culture in the camp themselves. You see that at camps, people who study this talk about the, the culture internally to the camp. But essentially, they recreated a lot of what was going on in Nazi Germany with the Gestapo. And what sense did you get in the research that this was prompted, obviously, from a loyalty to Hitler and the Nazi regime, but also the idea that internally, like, did, did they think that, oh, they're going to get out, they're going to rejoin the war, the, or that Germany's going to win the war? Like, like what's just sort of what, what was the mindset going in? That created that culture. In the second group, that is, Germany's going to win the war. In fact, when the camp was open, there were some uh, POWs who were preparing flower beds for when Hitler came to visit. But, you know, medicine had a long way from Berlin. And, you know, the smarter ones realized that that was not going to happen. They could not escape from Medicine Hat. There was basically no way. In any case, you'd get, you'd, in the winter, you'd die, and in the summer, you'd die, you'd, you'd die of heat, thirst. It's not like the Canadians who escaped from uh, Stalag Luft III, who had a chance of getting uh, to France or to uh, neutral countries, uh, to Sweden. You know, it, well, it's, you know, Canada's a much bigger place. We have to go back a second. Geneva, The Geneva Convention uh, recognizes that POWs are under two sets of law, the law of their home army and the law of the detaining power. Now, in fact, the detaining power was Britain, but they, there's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and Canada was the, declared the holding power, a term which doesn't exist in Geneva. So the Geneva Convention recognizes that home army law which is why the Geneva Convention recognizes the right to try to escape. 
under German military law and Canadian and British and American, there was a duty to try to escape if you can. Right. So that was recognized. And if you get caught, usually it was 18 days in the cooler. Now, the campy 1960s situation comedy, Hogan's Heroes, gets a lot of things right. Think of Colonel Hogan as the what was called the man of confidence, confidence man, man of confidence, camp spokesman, dealing with Colonel Clink. That's exactly how it worked in Medicine Hat. Okay. So the commandant doesn't actually issue orders to POWs usually, nor do the guards usually. It goes through the chain of command. So the chain of command is recognized, and you need the chain of command in order to control the men in the camp. Otherwise, you'd almost have to have one guard for every two or three POWs, right. which means, in theory, you'd have to 36,000 guards. Right. So you're not really doable. And in fact, the Americans uh, were so happy with their Nazified camps because they ran very well. They had very little trouble controlling the men. Of course, of course, the Gestapo did it for them. Mm-hmm. So you have a situation where the Germans can legitimately, I argue, at the, in the conclusion of the book, feel as though they are under the, the, the law of Germ- the German army, and they are. Again, the killing of Plazic is a sort of a mob action and a bit different. Lehman was considered to be, Carl Lehman was killed in 44. He was considered to be a defeatist and likely a spy. And in fact, he was both of those. They kill him a few months after the bomb plot fails. The famous movie Valkyrie, the von Stuffenberg bomb plot. After Hitler orders, and they had a radio, they could hear it, shortwave radio, hidden, of course, kill all traitors. And the next day, the leadership of the camp was supposed to, and they in fact were, moved to a POW camp in Nyes, Ontario, on Lake Superior, to make room for POWs from Normandy. So it was their last chance to kill the person they considered to be a traitor. And in fact, he was. But they didn't actually have the goods on him they considered to be. So you have these two murders of Plastic Lehman, as you talk about. But within this context where the leadership of the camp or the, the guards in that, they need the structure of the camp, the the prisoners themselves in order to maintain control, is there not an argument that could be made? And I'm not saying on a moral level or or even a legal level, but just on a practical level that they could have just turned a blind eye to it and said, well, if this is what the leadership within the camp decided, we don't really need to get involved necessarily. We could just let this go. Was that ever considered? No, uh, not in the record. And not, not really doable because uh, once the prisoner is dead, they have to inform the Geneva, uh, the, the Red Cross in Geneva, mm-hmm. and they have to give a reason for his death. Now, there were POWs who died all the time of disease, of wounds, of heart attacks. Uh, it was not uncommon in my years of my reading of those years that another POW has died. But the cause always has to be known. So if a man is beaten to death and hung, then, you know... It, it it gets a little dicey to try to ignore it, right? So they uh, so they that was I don't ever think that was considered. 
So once this investigation starts, how do you go about it? Because again, with this Gestapo that's in place within the camp, you would imagine that going in to do any sort of investigation is risky, whether it's by being upfront and doing a traditional police investigation, whether it's trying to put people in undercover, again, almost as, as spies. Uh, so, you know, how do you or how did they formulate an investigative process uh, recognizing that they still needed the Gestapo? It was relatively straightforward. They called men in whom they uh, saw uh, running after, let's say, Schultz and uh, Plazic, people who knew Plazic. They knew who the leadership was. They, you know, called them in. You're quite right that they uh, in, they put a man in, a uh, RCMP officer who was of German extraction, who spoke German uh, fluently, was put in as a, a repairman so he could listen. He couldn't wasn't supposed to speak German, but he could listen. He reported that the camp was about uh, somewhere between 40 and 60 percent Nazi. And the uh, case was not broken until after the war, when a anonymous letter is left on a desk of a common, on actually a typewriter, in the office of the commandant in Nice, Ontario, saying, these people killed these guys. And that broke the case. That allowed the RCMP and the uh, military intelligence to, sp- to start putting the screws, saying, we know what happened. You want to talk now? And in fact, in the second trial, the killing of Lehman, they had signed confessions. But let, let's talk about this a little bit, because uh, the timeline, I think, is very important in, in sort of establishing uh, what, what's going on. Because so, the, the murders themselves, of course, happened during the war. Uh, but then the trial takes place uh, in 1946. So uh, what does the timeline relative to the end of the war mean, if anything? Uh, and, and how does sort of the wheel of justice chronologically flow here? Well, as I said, the case was broken after the end of the war in Europe, not Japan. And then there's another basically a year of investigation of they knew who they wanted to, who they were going to try. The complaint gets made, charges brought, uh, the investigation continues. The end of the war is the precipitating factor to the ending of the case. I don't think there was ever any consideration. I saw nothing in the documentation. Well, let's just send these guys home and we'll, we'll be done with it. Right. They considered a crime that occur- had occurred on Canadian soil, and it was their responsibility to bring the perpetrators to justice. Was there any communication with what whatever was left of German military structure, which obviously gets dismantled at the end of the war, but was there any communication with anybody in Germany at that point? No. In fact, there were, some, there, there were a number of documents about whether or not they were still under the Geneva Convention because the war was over. Right. But it was decided that they would act as though they were under the leader uh, under the Geneva Convention, although they actually weren't legally speaking. And there was no no uh, discussion with anybody in Germany uh, that I that I have seen. There would probably there was nobody to have a discussion with. Uh, right, the, yeah. uh, <laughs> that only becomes an issue after the trials. Plazic's uh, murderers, uh, uh, Schultz's. Um, Kratz is uh, hung. There was a mistrial. One guy is exonerated. The other guy is hard labor. But in the Lehman trials, there's a number of letters from YMCA uh, people and German ministers, Lutheran ministers, who are not members of the Nazified church, but rather of the confessional church, which is the church that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was part of, of letters asking for clemency. But nothing, there was no, there was no official letter that I saw from even the uh, somewhat reconstructed German authorities of 1946. 
So as we get into the trial itself, what kind of information as a historian were you looking for? Because uh, again, you said earlier, you know the outcome as you're going through the material. You know what has happened. Uh, so as you're going through things like transcripts, evidence, what are the things that are standing out to you from the trial? Well, part of it is, uh, and I actually didn't spend a lot of time on this in the book because uh, it would be, uh, it's an inside baseball. Uh, the difference between the the uh, he was a lawyer. He was a German lawyer. Schopenfeld said in his interv- in three interviews and what he said in the trial, how uh, that would be inside baseball and quite boring, I think, for a uh, a general reader. And to be honest, I probably wouldn't have found it that interesting either. Uh, a few pla- at a few point places, I do point out this contra contradicted or expanded because I spent some time on it in the investigation. Describing the investigation, I would trial. I was looking for a good courtroom drama. By that point in the book, <laughs> uh, having having done the uh, you know a police investigation and having done you know some horrible murders, I was looking for a good courtroom drama, and I found it. I found a number of them. Part of the problem was I, in especially in the case of um, Leland's killers, I had multiple trials with all the same outcome. So uh, it, you don't. No reader is going to read you know, five versions of the same trial. So there were uh, a couple of long parentheses in the book saying in the second trial, he, this, this, they came back to this and it was, this was clarified. Uh, but there was, right. that was the only mechanical way I could think of, of getting through that without saying, oh, and let's do this all over again. The idea of actually creating a composite trial did not appeal to me because that would not be true to history. That, that would work. Even in a documentary, that would work. It would not work. And obviously in a film, it would work, but it w- wouldn't work in what I do. There were some great uh, courtroom things, uh, events. There was a, at one point uh, in the um, first uh, set of trials, they crown a, a defense attorney leads us through a mind-numbing discussion of the difference in German of between Boden meaning clay, and Bowden, meaning earth. Because Plazic was hit with a clump of something, which was either clay or earth, depending upon how you say it. It was absolutely mind-numbing and very funny at points. <laughs> Finally, the judge said, decided that for this purposes of this trial, clay is earth, and earth is clay. Quotation <laughs> <laughs> marks around clay both times. There were a couple of funny moments dealing with kissing the Bible. At one point, a, uh, a German soldier kisses his thumb instead. Judge Housen sees that and asks why. And he says, I don't believe in the Bible, uh, yada, yada, yada. And Housen blew his top and says, there'll be no more thumb kissing in my courtroom. <laughs> so th- there were, were those things, which are you know, kind of like gold for a write-up. There were the detailed medical reports and the explanation of what happened based on those reports. And then the development in the trials of the explanation of what you started with, the Camp Gestapo and its power. So a lot obviously comes through that uh, material. Another thing that that we talked about before we started to record, uh, the issue of sexuality and related to the legality uh, of it and how that plays into this uh, this whole story. Again, that's something that I wouldn't have expected 
uh, going through the book uh, initially to have found. But what was your reaction to this and how does that play into the story? Okay, well, I wasn't interested in homosexuality in terms of uh, uh, German POWs uh, having homosexual relations. That was, you know, particularly uninteresting. It's, it's well known that in camps this happens and has been written on elsewhere. What I was interested in was the issue of how the defense at certain points and the prosecution at certain points used homosexuality and specifically the degradation ceremony of Germans who were being disciplined by their command, the commanders of the camp, let's say the German commanders, for homosexual activity. So in each case, it was used to try to hammer away the credibility of either a defense the defense used it to hammer away the credibility of the, of the um, prosecution, and the prosecution used it to hammer away at the, not the defense of the, because uh, the, the defense really wasn't offered. They didn't have uh, much defense. It was much more trying to undermine the prosecution. How the prosecution used it to hammer away at uh, one of the other POWs who was not quite as strong in his condemnation of Lehman or Plazak. So it was the use of the use of it. It's interesting because uh, at one point, uh, defense attorney Rice actually says, and I'm more or less quoting, by, quoting correctly here, let us uh, uh, step deeper into the mire uh, of homosexuality. Uh, and that then led to a long discussion of German military law about homosexuality, Canadian or British military law about homosexuality, Tremaine's 1895 definition of homosexuality uh, uh, history uh, in common law. The word, word that's interesting there is Maya, because it almost certainly today would have led to a mistrial. Right. So it, uh, it it's interesting as a marker of a different time and different place. There are a couple of references to the use, the explanation and uh, homosexuality in terms of the degradation ceremony in the newspapers of the day simply saying that, not going into anything else. One wouldn't have expected to find any anything else uh, that way. But it is an interesting thing to look at how the judge allowed these discuss- th- these paths of questions to, co- uh, to continue and how they were not picked up on appellate by the appellate courts as any reason to question the trials. So after the trials and the ultimate verdicts, we do have uh, the executions that, that do take place. Uh, the book bills this as the last mass execution yeah. uh, in Canadian history here in uh, in uh, 1946. Right. And d- what does that event tell you uh, as the historian reading the, this material and then telling the story? Uh, the fact that uh, there was this execution, that it did take place uh, of these prisoners following the the legal proceedings just what is the the message and the legacy from the story well it's it's interesting they were not the only only men executed that day there was another man executed that day and they were very upset that they were being executed with him he was a child molester and in fact uh the night before the execution they slit their wrists they and they were rushed to the hospital patched up to be executed the next day right <laughs> in, yeah. in one of those things that you would almost think it's monty python if it weren't true, right. but they were extraordinarily upset that they were being executed uh, with this uh, this man. He was executed first. I think what it tells us in terms of the mass execution is that the 
the powers that be, including the governor general and his, at the time, his mercy, were absent. A similar situation occurred in South Africa. The Canadians knew about it because, in fact, the two men who were who were charged with murder had been transferred to Canada and had to be transferred out, back to South Africa. The judge in that case ruled that they did commit the murder, but that being in a prison of war camp and being told to kill someone for because they were trees were considered trees uh, having been treasonous is not a normal situation. Right. And so he sent them to 20 years of hard labor. And I, probably after five years, they were returned to what then became West what had become West Germany. The Canadians didn't. The Canadians allowed the executions to go forward. Interestingly enough, uh, there are two other cases which should be looked at. The first occurs in the days immediately prior to and after the surrender of the Germans to the Canadians in Holland. Two days before the surrender, two Germans surrendered to the Canadians, have defected, if you want to put it that way. The Germans, after their own surrender, asked for them back to be tried as deserted, deserters. We handed them back and gave the Germans the guns to shoot them. Hmm. So we recognized in that case the perseverance of German law, even after the extinguishment of the Nazi state. Right. So one would think that the same would hold true in Medicine Hat. The other case deals is uh, Keanu Inouye, the uh, uh, Japanese uh, first-generation Canadian Nessie, who was uh, also known as the Kamloops Kid, who was in Japan when the war breaks out, is drafted to the Japanese army, becomes a guard at the prison camp, in uh, Hong Kong, tortures some uh, people, charged on six counts of torture. He stands trial originally for treason, for, for sorry, he trans, stands trial originally as a Japanese. The trial is quashed, the, the verdict is quashed, and then stands trial as a Canadian for treason. And the judgment in that case is that his fealty to King George trumped the metropolitan law in Japan, because he's, mm. his citizenship had never been extinguished. So again, the German POWs, one would think under the same logic, should have been, at the very least, it should have been hard labor and not execution. It certainly does speak a lot to the nature of justice, uh, the idea of, of equal justice. What does that mean? Uh, so there's certainly a lot to unpack in all these various stories. And do, do you think as someone who has studied prisoners of war in, in multiple contexts and some of the ideas behind it, the culture behind it, this might be a big and potentially unfair question. <laughs> uh, was what happened in Medicine Hat, was this case a situation where justice was in fact served? As I said, I wanted to call the book Executing Justice, but uh, that's the title of the uh, afterwards. I don't think so. I don't think you can look at this and say that even in the, not being presentist, but looking at the legalities uh, at the time, it seems to me that justice was not served. I understand why it happened, but I don't think it should have happened. It was the wrong court, the wrong verdict at the wrong time. 
Certainly, we have only scratched the surface of the story here. There's a lot more in the book, uh, so we encourage you to uh, go and check it out. Again, it is Hanged in Medicine Hat, Murders in a Nazi Prisoner of War Camp, and the disturbing true story of Canada's last mass execution. Uh, Nathan, if people want to pick up a copy of the book, what's the best way for them to do it or to find some of your other work? Well, uh, it'll be, uh, it's uh, available uh, through Amazon, it'll be, uh, and it'll be in bookstores near you. All right. Uh, again, encourage everybody to check it out. Uh, Nathan Greenfield, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. So there you have it, my chat with Nathan Greenfield, and I thank him for his time. And with that, let's get right to today's historical headline of the week, which today comes from Legion Magazine from October of 2022, entitled Archaeologists Uncover Hospital Artifacts at Notorious POW Camp by Stephen J. Thorne. And this dig took place at the site of what was once the Lambsdorff POW camp in Poland, where archaeologists have uncovered things like syringes, razors, underwear, uniform buttons, utensils, and even the remnants of a heating stove. The campsite itself had become overgrown since the Second World War, but these items give some really important insights into what life was like at this location. It's a really fascinating site. It was established during the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s. It was expanded during the First World War. And then at the outset of the Second World War, a lot of Allied soldiers went through the site. Estimates as high as 400,000 Allied prisoners from 50 countries passed through Lambsdorff during the course of the war. So there's a lot here that can be learned about what these men experienced, how they were housed, and some of the daily realities of what it was like to be in this camp. And when you look around at what's going on in the world, perhaps most notably for us in Canada in terms of the coverage we get, in Ukraine right now, there are hundreds and thousands of individuals right now who are living as prisoners of war on both sides. Every couple weeks, it seems, we get articles about prisoner exchanges back and forth. And I think it's important that these stories, the experiences of these people, these individuals who are captured and are living as prisoners of war, that those stories don't get forgotten, that they are part of the wartime experience and understanding what they go through, how they survive, how they cope with their experience. But if I could even branch it out further to what human beings are capable of, not only the strength it requires to survive in these scenarios, but also the bonds that are built, the way human beings are capable of building community, forging relationships as amongst prisoners, potentially between prisoners and guards, and the resilience that human beings have. So that's why I'm always intrigued by these types of stories, the discoveries that come out of these sites, both in oral histories as well as the physical remnants. So I was very pleased to see this article and I certainly will be following this story as the work continues over in Poland. So again, today's historical headline of the week, archaeologists uncover hospital artifacts at notorious POW camp 
by Stephen J. Thorne in Legion Magazine. And with that, I will say thank you for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Do likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff helps other people find the show to keep us growing. If you have any thoughts on what you want to hear on the show, what's old is news at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening, everybody, and we'll be back with you again next week for more What's Old is News.